Hi, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Eldar Sadikov. He's the co-founder and CEO at Jetlore, a SaaS machine learning platform for e-commerce personalization and product recommendation. Jetlore ranked number 12 amongst the fastest growing companies in the Bay Area in 2017, and it was acquired by PayPal in 2018. Today, we're going to talk about Eldar's experiences of facing and overcoming the founder's challenges. But before we get into that, Eldar, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to participate. Yeah, excited to have you. So can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Did you always dream of starting a company? Yeah, I think I had I had some some thoughts. I think back when I was an undergrad, I always thought that I wanted to start a company. I didn't have a plan when this would happen, but I, I had an aspiration, a dream, I would say. And then I think that first, obviously, when I when I got out of school, I, I thought to get some experience. So I worked for companies. And then eventually when I got to Stanford, I think I ultimately got the startup bug. And I think that at that point in time, it was pretty clear to me that it will happen and with the right team and and right co-founders. So a little bit about your background that I know is you studied computer science at Stanford, uh, like you mentioned before. Could you tell us just a little bit about what you studied? And then once you were done, when did you actually start the company? Was it while you were in school or was it not until you finished? Yeah, so I, I have a unique experience in the sense that I'm a dropout. So I I, uh, I went to Stanford. Technically, my admission year was 2007. There was a little bit of a delay and I actually got to Stanford only in January 2008. And I was in the PhD program and I was doing computer science. My specialty was, I would say broadly, probabilistic statistical models for large data and what people might call applied machine learning to some extent trying to make predictions from large data sets. And so I spent three years at Stanford, had publications, passed my qualifying exam, got my master's along the way. And and uh, I guess at the end of 2010, early 2011, we got this idea that we got obsessed with it. I can tell you more about it, but we got obsessed with it, which is, has nothing to do with the eventual JetLore company from product perspective, but we got this idea and we decided to take a, take a pause, take a leave from Stanford and start this company. On behalf of the listeners, I have to ask, what was the idea that got you, knocked you off track? Yeah. So the idea was pretty cool. I thought at the time, because we, now you have to take yourself back in time into 2011, because I think that would, it would make more sense when you think about it in 2011. This is pre-Facebook IPO, but this was the time of emergence of all the major social networks. Actually, it was the year, I think, when, I think it was the year when LinkedIn went public, but Facebook did not go public yet. I think they went public in 2012, if I'm not mistaken. And and so the you have all these major social networks that emerge. And our idea was that what kind of, how can we make the social networks useful? And the way we thought about it was that There are a lot of common problems that people have on a day-to-day basis that they need kind of social proof for. So I'll give you an example. Like you, you have a house and you're trying to do something at your house, like replace a furnace or maybe fix your water heater. Maybe it's landscaping that you need help with. Or maybe parents might need to send their kids and find a daycare or kindergarten. Those types of things, we typically might go to Yelp or something like that. But ultimately, people trust 
places where they have social proof, maybe some places that people can, somebody can recommend a place and say, hey, I've done this here and I think I would highly recommend this place. So we thought that we wanted to build a system where you would pose a, a question in natural language. The system would read that question, analyze it, and based on the content of that question, it will then analyze your connections in your social network, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook, and then find the right person in your network that might answer that question for you. And then the person will get that question and they can answer that request or they can actually choose to route that request to one of their peers and say, hey, you know, I don't actually know a good daycare, but this people in your neighborhood, let's say, but this two other friends of mine might be able to help you here. That's an example. So the idea was to build this sort of like human routed Q&A service through social networks, but by leveraging NLP technology we built to analyze the actual content of the question to figure out who is the person to, to answer it. So that was the initial concept. And, and that's why this concept, actually, we got so obsessed with it that that's what led us to, to dropping out of Stanford and doing a, a startup. And so we built, uh, we built a product for it we, with a pretty good demo and uh, showed it to investors and, and got, got seed money for it and uh, with a, quite a few prolific investors in Silicon Valley. And, and that's how the company was born. And uh, I won't continue. I can share more details as we go, but uh, this is how... This is how my entrepreneurship journey uh, uh, began, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're here talking about JetLore today, so I'm I'm safe to assume that this idea never took off. But I'm sure you you learned some important lessons. What was the company called, and then what was what was your main takeaway from starting a, a company the first time? Yeah, so the company initial company was called Quisper. It's kind of a funny name, but we wanted a consumer name that sounded good to consumers, and we thought that it's like a query or question whisper you kind of whisper to somebody and so that was a play of two words and and whisper and and so anyways that was the name of the company and uh, we couldn't get traction primarily not because the product was bad i think primarily because we couldn't get the trust of people to use the system people had to log in with their social credentials whether they could have to connect to facebook or connect to twitter or linkedin one of their networks and and then the people that would get the questions would also have to log in and so the, the brand, we didn't have a brand and people didn't trust the system to actually, oh, you know, why do I have to trust this, the system? I don't know to log in and, and provide that, that answer. Uh, yes, it's a friend of mine that's, uh, that's asking me for that request, but uh, we couldn't bootstrap it. People just w- were not logging in. And even though people were routing questions, but they were not logging in, didn't feel comfortable logging in and giving their credentials. And and that's why we that B2C concept never took off. And that's why we, and that's when we decided to pivot and we said, all right, we, we have to build a different company for a different space, but maybe taking some of the technology we built and and utilizing it. Got it. So it sounds like the barrier to entry was pretty high and, and it was tough to find success that way. So it sounds like you're alluding to the next company. Can you give us a quick snapshot about Jetlore? Yeah, so the, the idea for JetLore was born when our investors said, hey, you know, you have a pretty cool NLP engine that analyzes this, this text and then can extract what they call entities out of that text. Semantics, I'll give you an example based on the question. We'll, we'll pull out things like daycare or mechanic or help with the, my taxes and accountant. So accountant and taxes would be, would be 
entities and what they would call semantics of, of the actual question. So they said, can you use that for maybe, you know, one of the company, one of the, one of our investors said, Hey, retail and e-commerce is hot. Maybe there is something you could do with it. And they, they made an introduction to, to Groupon, to a couple of groups of Groupon. And we talked to Groupon and Groupon said, okay, that's a pretty cool NLP engine you guys built. They said, can we use that NLP engine for our product feed? Because we have this massive feed of deals. At the time, it was uh, 140,000 maybe across the United States. And they said, a lot of these deals are inputted into the system by humans, by owners of those small businesses that we work with, whether it's a restaurant or a spa salon, maybe a nail salon. And we don't really have a good control over the quality of, of, the, of the descriptions that they put in. And we don't really have, we don't have a way to enforce a good taxonomy for that content either. So many times we actually don't know when a new deal comes into our system. We don't know whether it's, whether it's about haircuts or nails or whatever that might be. And if a person has bought a product in the past for nails, for example, clearly they might be interested in nails again, and we don't have a way to tell that this, this new deal is relevant to them. And so we, we basically use our technology to analyze their, their deals feed, their product feed, and then ultimately for the purpose of personalization, for the purpose of then taking that information and saying, you know, based on what you've done in the past, based on what you've purchased, based on what you've clicked on, searched for on the site, are you likely to buy this new deal? And, and so we use that technology to basically rank deals out of their feed for each user and basically select, rank and, and score and personalize the deals for each user. And... And it worked pretty well. I mean, the, the, the offline initial tests that we've run and uh, we've, we ran at that point a long time ago. And then further tests that we, we did with them showed a pretty substantial lift. And, and that was an early indication that this product has had lags. And then what happened next was that they obviously we were a very small company at the time. We're, we're talking about now this is circa 2013 i think groupon went public just recently at that at that time frame and they and we were a company of i think like nine people maybe 10 max and 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 what happens next is that they they turn around and they they say it works well for us we want to buy you because obviously you know a public company with huge staff multi-billion dollar market cap company they didn't they didn't want to partner and license technology from a 10, 10 people company. And they said, it's easier for us to just buy you. And, and so they came and, and they gave us a, a pretty big offer to get acquired. And at the time it was the type of money that would be life-changing for us. I mean, we were just a bunch of grad students out of Stanford and young kids, like 25, 26 year olds, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was a substantial amount of money for us. And we almost took it and, you know, we almost took it and, but investors at the time that we had stopped us and convinced us, no, 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 you shouldn't take that offer because I think you have a technology that could actually work for many more companies and we will finance you and we will support you and you should keep going. And so then we turned around and we basically went to all of the competitive or close enough companies with Groupon at the time in the space. And we're talking about, again, 2013, this is the golden time for flash sales is when Living Social was still hot and Wonkins Lane and sort of all this, you know, event-based sales that limited time sales were very popular coming back from the big mortgage crisis. And so we went to all of these companies, including eBay deals 
and offered this technology and successfully signed up a bunch of those customers in 2014 and, and started making money. We, we quickly went to probably almost a million dollars in, in revenue first year that we launched this, this offering. And that's the story behind JetLore. That's how it was born. Wow. Just wow. So it sounds like you'd been working on the product for, or your NLP algorithm rather for about two years before you had your first offer. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, we had, we had some, we had some, I think that the, the team was very strong from the beginning. I think we, we built a very strong, like coming out of Stanford, we, we brought a lot of good, good people, good engineers, talented people. So I think that we had early offers. Some of the big, big companies like guys like Facebook came and, and tried to do an equity hire before 2013, just because they thought, oh, this is a smart team. They're doing something in LP. At the time, a couple of these companies were also looking to do things in that space. Facebook was building search, just, just was building search. There was no search before 2013, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and so anyway, so that th- th- there was an appetite, but I think that this was the first series offer that we received with the term sheet and and it was a it was a big offer it wasn't like it was bigger than a typical equity higher offer for us and that's why it was so tough to to say no to this because you know we were just two years into it yeah but it sounds like you made the right decision Uh, i guess we'll have to evaluate that again at the end of the podcast so talk talk a little bit more about preparing to launch your startup when did you know it was the right time well, I always say that. I, I even have a blog where I where I talk a, a little bit about some of those experiences. But I think that the the first time you do it, it's almost easier because, like, I think you you don't know what what you getting yourself into, and it, it's like I think that the, the criteria for first time founders many times when they get into it is is how obsessed you are with the idea, like how how determined mm-hmm. and how 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 much conviction you have in that idea, and then second of all. Sometimes circumstances end up pulling you in and, and it just, you kind of fallen into it. Like that, that's kind of, that's how it felt to me at least at the time. So like, uh, I will again, rewind the time and, and tell you a little bit about it because, you know, we're, we're saying, here's the, the sequence of events that happened. Like I go to my PhD advisor and I say, Hey, I have this idea. I'm really obsessed with it. I was expecting a reaction from him and I was like, can you give me a little bit time off this quarter so that I could spend more time on it but you you take it easy on me kind of and then instead of like just giving me that he's like well why don't you take a leave you can take a break for a year try it out and then come back like it's a year won't change anything so a lot of people have done this at stanford and then that was kind of like what like can i do that and 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 that was kind of the first the first trigger then the second trigger was the second trigger was we get into startax which was like this new accelerator program community, I should say, for Stanford entrepreneurs that was just for alums and, and, and current, current students. And we get into that. And then all of a sudden, we're in this community of other companies that talk about raising money and valuations and, and everything else. And then we're like, was this really happening? We have an office now, like really, really swanky, really cool office. And yeah. that, that was the second trigger. And then the third trigger is like, oh, can we raise money? And we actually go and, and end up raising capital, not just, just any capital, but from some really prominent angel investors and, and people in the Valley. And it's like, whoa. And, and the, all that sequence of events was happening. And what I mean by it's, it was pulling us in. We were mm-hmm. kind of falling into that without even like realizing that this is happening to us. So that's kind of how it was like for me first time, you know, like building a company. 
it may be different for somebody else, but but I think that's that I would imagine that for many first time entrepreneurs, it, it probably is happening like that. I think second time and third time when you when you've done that, I think it's much more of a conscious and and rational and and, and very well thought out decision. But but for first time entrepreneurs, I think this is how many times it happens. So once you decided to launch JetLore, what were some of the key decisions you had to make? Oh, it's everything. It's about who do you bring on on the team? Do you incorporate? Like that's the biggest thing that you ask yourself. Probably the biggest decision you make is like, all right, well, you have this idea. You start working on it. You start building it. You start writing code and and kind of building the the demo. And then you like at some point you stop and you're like, well, should I incorporate? Should I protect that intellectual property or 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 that? Like, oh, then I have to file taxes and all that stuff if I do this. So incorporation is the big step. And then the next big step was then once we incorporated, we we hired some contractors, some people to work for us, designer and, and, and those types of people. And then the next decision you make is like, should I raise capital for it? Because at some point you realize that, oh, I can't pull all of the weight of it myself. And you decide to raise capital. So So those are some of the decisions. And obviously... Before all of this, you obviously also decide who you co-found the company with and how do you split equity and those types of things that also happens. Well, let's talk about that next. First, before we talk about splitting up equity, let's talk about building the team. Did you did you ever consider being a solo founder or did you always plan on doing this as a team? It's a good question. I think that I always thought that I would have co-founders. I don't think that, that I ever, when I thought about building a company, I don't think I ever said that. Obviously, there is often a main co-founder that kind of like gets everybody together and says, hey, I'll do this. But I don't think I ever thought that I'd just solo a single co-founder because that's tough. That's difficult. Especially the first time. Had you worked with your teammates before? How did you go about choosing your co-founders? Well, in my case, we we worked together. So my co-founder and I, we, we worked on some papers together at Stanford and published together did research together. So this was a, a pretty natural, we talked and, and we had this idea. And so like we, this was a very natural decision to work together, essentially. We also had a third co-founder that joined a little bit later. That was an interesting story because, so it was just two of us out of Stanford. And then the third co-founder, he joined us. He was not even in the United States. He was in Netherlands doing his uh, graduate study in that in Netherlands and at the time we were looking for Scala developers because we we decided to build this project in, in Scala which was a, a pretty new programming language at the time very few people knew about it in 2011 and 2010 and so and as part of that developer community we found Sergey our third co-founder and he he was just through community we found him and we said hey do you want to work on this project we started working on this project and then, and then we started saying, "Hey, he's he's really good. Like, we want to bring him in." And and then we we made an offer. Do you want to do you want to be part of it? Part of this? And do you want to be a co-founder and come here and move here? And uh, and that's how he became our third co-founder. Let's talk about roles next. How did you handle assigning roles and positions amongst the co-founders? So I think that it was also natural. I think that we didn't have a lot of deliberate discussion that took hours or something like that. No, I think it was, I think I, I, I from, I'm, I'm from the beginning, I was the gear behind it because some of the, even some of the research that we worked together, I was already working on the space and, and uh, you know, not that I, I, I can't say that I got the idea. I can't remember who among the two of us. I think it was probably a, a joint decision to, 
joint intellectual output of both of us to actually decide on the idea. But I think that I was a little bit of a main gear in this from the beginning. So I think that was natural that I would take a, a CEO role. And then, and then the, my co-founder was kind of a co-pilot. So when we brought the third co-founder, we said, okay, well, let's give the third co-founder a CTO function. And then my, 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 my first co-founder, she took a COO role because that was the second most important person in the company. So the second co-pilot, so to say, and that's why we split that, we split those responsibilities, even though in reality, all of us were technical. So all of us were writing code and all of us were like, like what's CTO, CEO, COO on paper when you have a bunch of engineers and geeks building this technology. Yeah. So, okay. So it sounds like uh, the, the roles kind of naturally assigned themselves. How did you go about doing something a little bit less natural, which is splitting up equity and, and cash compensation? So that was, I think that's a more difficult topic for a lot of founders because I think I've seen many different variations. I think that the simplest one is that if, if you all come in and co-found a company at, at, at one point, so like we, you basically work together in the same house or I, I don't know, whatever, you get together and, and you work together from the very beginning and you incorporate. I think that many co-founders just make a, a simple decision. Let's split it evenly. So you have three co-founders, you have two co-founders, let's split it evenly. And that's kind of the decision we made initially with the two co-founders, we, two of us, we just said, 50-50. And then, and then the, the, when, when people join later, then naturally they tend to have less equity because at that point when, when somebody comes in later, you already have something that you've built up, you have some momentum, and that's when I think that naturally it's much harder. Unless somebody who comes in is a, let's say, renowned and entrepreneur and somebody that could really be the, the differentiator for the company, I think naturally that the that late co-founders uh, tend to get a smaller stake in the company. So that's what happened for us. So the third co-founder had a had a smaller stake in the company and Sergey and then I've also seen a, a different makeup. So I've seen companies that and I think it's also fair by the way having done uh, you know this experience uh, at least once when CEO takes a little bit larger stake so that let's say you have a initial set of co-founders and then it's very natural if CEO takes a larger stake. Let's say if you have three co-founders, it's very natural to say 40% goes to the CEO, 30% goes to the other two co-founders that, that at the initial phase. Because I think that I would be very comfortable with that if I was building a company now and I was not the CEO. Because at the end of the day, I think as a CEO, you, you, go, you get to like emotionally and psychologically and, and all around, you, you carry a little bit more weight than, than any other member on the team. So I think that that's why I feel like it's, it's also a very natural split to make. Yeah, the buck stops with you. Okay, next, let's talk about first hires and investors beyond the founding team. At what point did you start making your first hires? And who was your first hire? It's a great question. So I think that if I have to rewind, I think probably the very first hire was a designer because that was the most immediate need because we were building a consumer product and we needed a great looking product that would look good and professional. Uh, so we went and we basically scouted design programs, different schools and uh, arts and design programs and found a great designer out of uh, San Francisco Academy of Art who was about to graduate and uh, we saw her portfolio and or maybe I'm, I'm messing up the story I think we might have found a friend of hers 
messaged her. She said, oh, I cannot do it because of, because of my commitments. But this other friend of mine, she's really good. She might be looking for something. And then we looked at her portfolio. We liked it. Anyways, we, this was our first hire, technically. Then after that, I think we had, technically, we had a remote contractor that we hired through Odesk, or I think it's called Elance now. Well, I don't know if you consider that a hire, but it was technically a contractor who became an employee eventually. And then the next employees were, we had one friend from Stanford that we hired out of, out of the, the graduate program. And then the next hire was another guy who was doing a startup who tried to get into YC and he was doing stuff in the space and we convinced him you should join us. And he basically joined us to do this company. So those were like, I'm, I'm just giving you a set of different people, but I'm, those are the types of people that I think end up becoming first time, first employees. And was that like in the first six months of the company? Was it uh, about a year? This was about first six months. I'm telling you all the names of different people, not the names, but all the people that we hired probably in the first six months. And when you're doing those early hires, how do you strike the right balance between hiring someone that's flexible and hiring someone that has a knowledge depth? That's a great question. So I think obviously you want knowledgeable people. So I think that's a natural filter. You're not going to, you're not going to hire people that are not qualified to do the job. But I think that there are other qualities that you you look for. I think that one is they need to be passionate about the space. Ideally, they should be or passionate or simply friends because they, you worked with them and they're like, you know, I believe in it because I believe in you. And, but ideally both. So they're passionate and they, they respect you and, and kind of have that, have that conviction, conviction to follow you. The Third one, I would say that I didn't realize until maybe a couple of years into the journey is that not every person is made for startups. I think startups are very chaotic and they're very crazy and just uh, there is a lot of ambiguity. There is a lot of constant changes and, and just chaos, like general chaos. And I think that some companies that have spent a long time in a big company, when they join this type of chaotic environment, that's completely out of their comfort zone. And I think that you need people that would be comfortable with chaos. And that means either they've worked at a startup before, they tried to build a startup before, or they maybe just sometimes people out of school, out of grad school or somewhere good because you can morph them into what you need them to be rather than people that have, let's say, spent 10 years at a big company. When they join a very early stage company, they just tend to have this, uh, oh, shoot, this is, this is insane. Like this is, uh, this is a uh, chaos and I can't deal with it. They're used to a certain level of process. Yes, exactly. And they, they used to have a support group, like you need DevOps and you need this and you need that, and you need a stage environment and, and this. And like in the early days, you don't have any of that. You're kind of like working as you go and, and the requirements are changing. And for them, it just feels like you can't operate like this. So I understand you guys use some remote engineering talent. What are some of the pros and cons of using a remote team, especially now considering that all teams are, are, are remote during uh, lockdown and quarantine? I think that remote engineers are great because they, first of all, the global economy, you can find any type of engineer quickly if you open your, your scope to remote engineers. Because, for example, there are specialists, like, for example, DevOps or iOS engineers that tend to specialize in specific things. And there might be a, a very 
severe shortage of them in specific geographic areas. Like in Silicon Valley, I would say that, for example, still up to this point, iOS engineers are in huge demand. And so then when you open up your scope and search to people outside of outside of your geography, then you all of a sudden can find somebody much more quickly and, and potentially very qualified or maybe even more qualified than somebody that you would have had to settle if you had to just find somebody locally. So that just allows you to operate much faster. This is probably one of the big pros. The major con, and I think that I'm still trying to, to figure out how to overcome this, this main disadvantage even with the, the COVID-19 situation is that you can't really build a culture. So if you, all of your team consists of all the remote workers and they're all in different locations, building culture is very hard uh, at a company. And I think that part of just overall efficiency and momentum that you build up as a company is, is about culture and bonds that you build between people. And I think that aspect is completely goes away. Having said this, I think that nowadays with COVID, I think that becomes much more common. People just will have to solve the culture problem somehow over time. But, but I think that out of necessity, we all moving towards the virtual type of environment uh, workplace. Yeah, it's tricky. And personally, I'm working at a company, we're doing a couple things, one of them's donut to try and encourage people to meet online and spend some time outside of just direct work. But it is it's an interesting challenge. And we'll see uh, how we go about solving that. Next, let's talk about fundraising. When you were fundraising, were you able to gain bargaining leverage and get on founder friendly terms early? Yeah, I think, well, we, we definitely were very lucky, especially early on when we were building a, the company, because what happened to us is that one of, when we started fundraising, we immediately got commitment from a very prominent uh, partner at a very prominent VC firm. I could maybe speak Charles River Ventures, which is a pretty well-known VC firm uh, here in the Valley. So a pretty prominent partner at this firm basically said, yes, I'm ready and I'm willing to commit uh, money towards it. And, and so with him on board, and then he basically started pulling in other, other people that he knew saying, hey, you know, you guys, like mostly prominent angel investors, you guys should, mm-hmm. uh, should look at this company. And so with this type of pool, then more and more investors came in and, so, and some really prominent angel investors uh, joined, uh, joined our round. And then, and then we got another VC firm now coming in and saying, hey, we actually want to lead and not just like, unlike the, the first VC firm that said, hey, I'll just put in like 300K, you know, like, like you know, a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. Here they said, hey, I'm willing to lead and I'm actually willing to, to put a, a million dollars close to that, a little less than that maybe, and lead the, the round and set the terms and, and write the term sheet. And, and I think that, we were almost like drinking from the fire hose a little bit because we were like, oh, we're so important. We're so cool. And all of a sudden we, to be honest, like looking back, we almost turned off our, this VC firm that led our, our round because we were a little bit cocky because we're like, they, they offered us a pretty good, uh, they offered us a convertible debt around and gave us a cap. And they were like, oh no, we, we, this is I don't know the language we used uh, in the email to them, but basically we kind of were a little bit arrogant saying, oh, this cap is too low or this is not, this is not market or something like that. And luckily we had, we had a couple of, we had an associate that worked in that firm that was like really good at working the, 
the uh, the internal dynamics and it was settled even though we, we didn't use a good language there and they actually improved the terms based on based on our pushback and then we got a very gracious terms at the time and and uh, they uh, and then everything was easier then we had a, a lead investor we had a bunch of prominent angels we had this other firm then another firm VC firm came in and they said oh give us space give us space and you know it was like you know like our seed seed round was probably the the mo like really felt a little bit like a party round because everybody was like oh you know i need to get in sounds fun what was your experience working with advisors at that time advisors i think we had a few i think that we we had well first of all one of our angel investors is is a pretty prominent guy he's a he's definitely a well-known guy in silicon valley one of the most prominent entrepreneurs in the space and he he gave some really valuable advice, even though I didn't see him often. Maybe I would see him once a year. But every time I, sp I spoke to him, had some very good feedback. Very, he's very harsh. He was very harsh with us, but, but at the same time, very good feedback. We also had some good, found a great product designer we worked a little bit with, Elliot Lowe. He, he designed some, 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 you know, he was one of the early designers of Yammer. And then he worked with a lot of hundred startups companies and, and uh, he gave us some really good advice on, on just design and product. Some of the angel investors had some really good advice. I think that most of, if I called anybody advisors, maybe we should have gotten more advisors once we had a product market fit. And once we started selling to retail, I'm thinking about it now, maybe we should have taken either added to our board or maybe informally, you know, through equity, gotten more advisors that knew retail and knew the space. But I'm thinking more in the first two years of the company when we did pivots, I think angels really acted as advisors for us because they would, they would get to we would get together with them and, you know, whatever I needed, like, oh, I need to hire this type of person. And they would really try, try hard with, with us and try to help. All right. Let, next, let's talk about the exit. Tell me about life before and then after the acquisition. Yeah, I think everybody has to go through this. And I think it's a valuable experience. Again, this is one of those things. I've never done it. So it was the first time I was going through it. The life before, I think that like any startup, we, you know, we went through each quarter, we had goals, we had sales goals to hit revenue goals and everything else. And everybody worked hard to hit those goals. Then that acquisition offer came in. I think that we engaged with PayPal late 2017 and the acquisition offer came early 2018. And, uh, and then obviously like everything sort of like the company keeps operating, but for us, everything almost like shut down because we're like heads down, just working on this and working through diligence and everything else. It was very time consuming because you have lots and lots of meetings with the acquirer, them trying to understand the product, them trying to assess all the risks. It really felt to some extent like the diligence that you go through when you raise capital, because you also have diligence when you raise money and, and do institutional funding. You also have to prepare a bunch of legal docs and spreadsheets and employees and assets and, you know, making sure that you have confidentiality and proprietary inventions agreements with each one of them. And do you have documents on lease and other things? But then you have a lot more. Like, I think that this is much more of a much more detailed examination of your business because you also do, I don't know, describe all of the, well, you do some of that also during fundraising, like describe, describe all of the open source projects you're using in your code and describe the process that you use for releases, describe the process that you use to test the security of your system and all kinds of stuff. Like, like the amount of documentation you prepare when you get acquired is just enormous. So that was a probably four months process. That's, that was, that was the experience. 
then I think the most interesting part is when you get acquired. So I think that I'm trying to think if how to best describe it because I want to describe it as kind of lessons rather than just like, oh, um, here's what happens. So what happens is that we, because we're a pretty small company, like 40 people, we basically, they basically said, hey, you should move to our headquarters because we're all located in the Bay Area. So, you know, maybe in some acquisitions when they're larger and when they have hundreds of employees, then you stay in the office and it doesn't feel the same way. But for us, we had to move to PayPal to their headquarters. And it really felt like, oh my gosh, we, we now work for this big company. And it, it really felt like you, it became a different world because yes, we had some revenue goals each quarter and still had to do the same things. But we, it really felt like we're in a new place. There was all this uh, operating rhythms that we're not used to. They were like, oh, there's operating governance meeting each quarter and you have to report this and you have to prepare this presentation. And then you have to, you have to do this type of report and do this type of report. So that really felt like I'm in a different world. And it's like, it's like going from, let's say you were in, in air and then you jump into the water and like your motions and everything, the way it feels is it feels different when you're in the water. That's, that's how it felt uh, going into the acquisition. If I had to use any kind of metaphor, it's just like going from one fluid into another and it has a completely different type of physics uh, that you experience. Viscosity. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, that's how it felt. And if I had to give any advice based on this, I would say number one is I think Many entrepreneurs tend to focus, just keep doing the same thing that they did, which is like many companies, when they get acquired, the advice that the acquirer gives them is like, keep doing what you're doing, keep uh, hit, hit your revenue goals and don't worry about anything else. If you hit your revenue goals, everything is going to be fine. And that's partially true. But the reality is that you now in this big, big, big company and with a lot of different products, a lot of different stakeholders. And I think that the the mistake that many founders make is that, first of all, you need to spend a lot of time relationship building within this company. Get to know mm -hmm. as many people as you can. Figure out all the important symbiotic things that, that the acquirer cares about. Like, why did they buy you? For what reasons did they buy you? And I think that you need to focus on those and almost... I would say even more importantly than, than hitting your, your core goals that you, you knew before get, getting acquired that you try to hit those symbiotic uh, goals that they had and build relationships and under, understand where else can you, can you help and how else can you contribute to other products? Because what happens in the first year, everything is like, oh, fireworks, like, oh, great, we bought this company. I want to get to know you and, and this and that. And, and, but very soon, unless you build more relationships and symbiotic synergies with, with the company, that excitement goes away and then you also need to realize that most likely your company revenue line is very small compared to the to the overall acquirer's revenue goals like paypal is makes close to 20 billion dollars a year that's a massive revenue line so whatever company they acquire even if that, that company makes a hundred million dollars a year that's still a, a drop in the ocean for that acquirer so I think that making sure that more stakeholders benefit from your existence will solidify your position at, at this corporation. And if you actually want to grow in the chain of, of command and, and become more important at this company, that's what the entrepreneur should care about. All right. I think this is probably the last question from me. How was that shift of responsibility from being CEO of the company to then transitioning 
getting acquired and transitioning into a new company. And then once the deal was over and having a sort of a new list of responsibilities, tell me just a little bit about that experience and how did you handle it? It's an interesting experience because you spend a few years with no boss. Like you have your board and you have your investors and yes, they, they can push you a little bit, but at the end of the day, they can't tell you, don't do this. You're really the boss for, for yourself and for everyone. And, and now all of a sudden you have your own boss and then that boss has a boss and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that in itself is a huge transition because I think it, it helped me in, in many ways because I think it also, for example, made me a better manager because I think once I became part of a larger corporation, I started reflecting, oh, how will I feel if my boss told me that? And how would I want my boss to deliver that specific message? So those types of things, I think, started happening to me. So I think that I I became much more reflective on as a people manager working in a large corporation. I also realized that at a larger corporation also, like I think there's so much of that 360 feedback and 360 view that's important because there's there are all these peers and other groups that you work with and and how your group and how you are perceived from everybody else influences how you can get things done within this, this big company. So I think that that type of experience was extremely valuable to me because even though I'm in a, I've been in a pretty high up position there, senior director, like there, there are so many other peers and, and higher up people that it's important how they treat me. And I think that that experience just really helped me to, to understand how, how to operate in this type of environment. Overall, it felt, it felt much busy, busier, I would say. Like the, the funny thing is that when I, before I got acquired, I always thought, well, get acquired and it's probably going to be a, an easy ride for a couple of years. So I was like thinking it to myself because it's like, well, you get this, this nice cushy corporate job, you know, you, you, you get paid well and you know, like it, it's going to be easier now because you don't have that emotional stress of like, oh, I need to raise capital. If, if my bottom line is bleeding, I need to con- continue to raise capital and responsible for the people that work for this business. And that's the toughest mental thing about being a CEO of a, of a company. But I think in this case, it's not that I didn't, it's not that I had mental stress anymore, but it's just like the amount of overhead I had to do, like I still had to do the same things I had to do as, as, as a CEO of a startup. But now there's just so much overhead with, the, with the, the new entity, new people, new bosses, new operating governance of, of all kinds of reports and presentations that all of a sudden I was like, I don't have as much time. I just, I'm constantly in meetings. I, I felt a lot busier significantly busier than, than I was when I was, when I was a CEO, CEO of a standalone business. Those are probably the, the, the key differences uh, for me. All right. Well, definitely a little counterintuitive, but that's why we bring on experienced operators. We love to hear your thoughts. And that was one that I would not have predicted. But you sound like someone who has a lot of great experience, who is self-reflective, and you sound like a wonderful person to work for. So if you do decide to start a third venture, please give me a call. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Alec. Uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's flattering that you say that. <laughs> thank you. So before we go, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you? They can, uh, they can reach out to me via LinkedIn, alternatively, probably email. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to hear people's thoughts uh, you know, via email. Uh, my email is elversatile at gmail.com. Also, if you 
don't have anything to say, but you're curious about my opinions, you can also follow me on Medium. I have a blog on Medium uh, that talks about entrepreneurship and startups in general. All right. I'll have to check that out myself. Uh, We're going to end it here. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating. Thanks, Eldar, for joining the show today. Let's get you back on here as soon as possible. Thank you. Thank you.